Hey, everybody, it's Pete. Raise your hand if you've never had any challenges with money. Now look around. See that? You're all alone. Okay, okay, my gimmick aside, it's money week, and that's scary. Jobs won and lost, health care, insurance, education, bills coming due, major unexpected expenses. It's no understatement to say that for a lot of us, how we relate to money defines how we relate to the world around us. Ted Klontz is back on the show with us this week. Last time he came around, he was talking about readiness for change. What we didn't cover in that conversation is a non-trivial part of his career, financial behavior. And he doesn't do it alone. Brad Klontz, Ted's son, is a founder of the Financial Psychology Institute and an associate professor in financial psychology at Creighton University. He spent much of his professional career helping people with money and wealth issues, and together with his father, has written books such as Wired for Wealth and Mind Over Money. Their latest, Money Mammoth, dives deep into the psychological barriers that stand between us and our financial success. Talking about money out loud is a terrifying thing for a lot of us. Together, Brad and Ted help us to approach this subject with a little less trepidation, with the knowledge that we're not doing it alone. Many of us feel this way, and many of us are looking for change. We hope you find a dose of that change today in their conversation with Dodge Ray. Well, welcome, Ted and Brad Klontz. So glad to have you guys on the show. Ted, our listeners will remember you from season one as an extraordinary coach and change agent. But what we didn't talk about back then is how much of your career has been spent in really innovative work around financial psychology and a whole lot of that with your son, Brad, who's kind enough to come join us today to talk about some of the work you guys have done. And Brad, this is your jam, man. Like I started looking up your background and how much you've accomplished in this area. And it is amazing to me. I mean, I knew about you guys having written many books together. The ones that come to mind first are Financial Wisdom of Ebenezer Scrooge and Wired for Wealth and Mind Over Money and now Money Mammoth, the one we were going to talk about today. But you've achieved some real recognition with the APA, that is the American Psychological Association. There we go. I mean, it's been a it's been quite a career of working this way, you guys. Um, so set this up for us a little bit. Um, first of all, talk to us a little bit about the kind of mess most families and individuals are in as in this country. Like there is a real need for this kind of work. And then let's talk about what this kind of work is. The way I explain it is uh, if you hold your right hand in front of your right shoulder, palm facing in, this is what we know we should do with money, would like to do with money. We believe we need to do with money. And if you hold the left hand up at the same, right at the left shoulder, hand towards the other, there's a gap, right? And and that gap uh, can kill and literally does. The, the gap for at least two decades since we've been paying attention, maybe even more, uh, essentially represents one of the greatest stressors that Americans have faced for decades. And marriages, 
whether you decide to live or die, you know, depression, all the, all the kinds of things that are associated with managing stress. Um, money's the number one by far, by a factor, uh, several factors of anything else in terms of, you know, the things that create that kind of tension. And, uh, and, and it's not a subject that we talk about. It, it is more taboo. We, there's a lot of talk about money, but not my personal interactions or relationship with it. And it's considered a taboo. And I remember when I started getting this work, I literally had a colleague call and say, I see you've sold out. It's like, hmm. what's that mean? Well, money's your thing. It's like, it's like I, I'm just talking about it. I don't have any. It's like, I don't care. You know, it's like we broke a taboo. And it's been very cool to watch how this has grown since the year 2000 to now. It's like now uh, it's magical what's happened. And it's really happened because of the pain that's occurred over the last 20 years in the financial systems. So it's amazing to watch that. It's now a field in psychology. It's now a field in the financial planning thing that did not exist when we went to do our first research, there were no studies published on the average person's behavior around money and how to change them. We were talking about this the other day, Ted, and you were saying that by about a factor of three, money is the highest source of stress, the highest source of divorce, of suicide, of domestic abuse, and very few like have enough for even the most basic surprise. Even a $400 surprise puts most people into debt. And, and most people are actually in significant debt already. Yes. It just yes. puts them over the, <laughs> over the debt edge. further right. into debt, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this gap you talk about um, is this gap between what we know we should do and what we actually do. Correct. Brad, can you pick us up from there? Like, say some more about financial psychology and, like, how do you, how do you begin to work with this? So, you know, everything that um, the senior Dr. Klontz stated is is just spot on. And it's not an overstatement. I mean, like there's, there's actually been a lot of studies done on, um, you know, the mortality risk and how your mortality risk shoots up through the roof if you have financial stress. And there's some studies that have shown that financial stress is just as dangerous for you as, um, you know, obesity, smoking, heart disease. I mean, it's like it's it's not an overstatement. And the field of, of psychology had essentially ignored that as a topic of interest for decades. And um, we've actually done studies on, on why that is. And um, essentially, many of us who are drawn to the field of therapy, the healing professions, have what we've, what we've called a, a money avoidant mindset. Like, you know, money's bad. Like there's this negative association with money. And this is something that actually Freud identified <laughs> when he first started um, delving into the realm of the subconscious in human beings. We have a negative associated, like money is, is kind of dirty. You know, there's that sort of sensation or that sort of um, idea that many of us have. And we're drawn to professions who think the same way. And so that, that aversion to money is really an interesting thing because it's a double-edged sword because our studies have found the more that people think that money is bad, rich people are greedy, like the, more, the degree to which you have this intense negative association. And this is sort of mind-bending, but it's, it's highly correlated with also mm. putting money on a pedestal. Now, it, it, that's just, that doesn't make a lot of sense logically, but internally, just imagine this push-pull. It's like the people who most um, hate rich people, for example, or think there's virtue in having less money are the same ones who are most likely to tell you um, that 
you know, I wish I had more money. I wish I was rich. I wish I was wealthy. And just, just one example of this internal conflict that happens with people around money. And it starts to help explain why we do self-destructive things around money. And our, and our relationship with money on average in the United States has just been pretty self-destructive. So essentially we're one of the wealthiest countries throughout human history by far, yet money is the thing that's stressing us out the most. I mean, that just doesn't make a lot of logical sense, right? Um, and so it's like, what, what are we doing wrong here? Because clearly it's not just a financial issue and clearly it's an emotional is- issue, a psychological issue. And that's really been the bulk of what we've been doing for the last couple of decades is um, trying to figure out like, what are these beliefs that we have? And so a lot of our research is on money scripts, these beliefs we have about money and where do they come from? And for many of us, they come from our parents and grandparents. Like all my money hangups are clearly my father's fault <laughs> and my mother's fault. Um, and but but you know they're coming down through the generations. And so some of these things we've traced back to great 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 grandparents. Like for example, this this thing that my father and I both have is like you know this fear of not having enough and this fear that we need to work harder. We need to work harder. Well, I'll, I'll have my father share with you a little bit of the family history, like discovering great, great, great grandfather living in a poor house and dying in a poor house. And I realized, you know, this anxiety I have about not having enough clearly has nothing to do with reality, <laughs> which is why I'm trying to say, like, like even, you know, middle class, even lower, you're, you're like, again, you're like one of the wealthiest people on the planet. Like, you know, um, for many of us in the United States, we're not worried about starving as a, as an issue that most of our ancestors had to worry about constantly. It's just not part of our consciousness. It's not something that we're worrying about day to day, but money's keeping us up at night. It's stressing us out. It's ruining relationships. And so we're fascinated. I'm fascinated with just this emotional relationship we have with money and, and how it very often doesn't correspond with our reality, but Mm. it leads to tremendous amounts of suffering. It's both fascinating and such a shame that we aren't studying this more or as as a therapeutic community talking about it more. I remember, Ted, you saying many years ago in a in a course, maybe a seminar or a group I was participating in with you. It's been a lot of them. Um, You were saying if you want to cut across pretty much every issue somebody's got in one question, ask them about what's going on for them around money. And you will get to self-esteem issues, beliefs about abundance, the friendliness of the universe, about what they're allowed to have or not. Um, It cuts into sexuality. Uh, It's absolutely amazing how many different things money will touch in a given psyche. And it's kind of no wonder we're so vulnerable to ending up with dysfunction and disorder around how we relate to it. Yeah, the one thing that I um, was struck by one day, I was looking at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and money mm-hmm. is the only thing. Now, it may not be the only thing, but it's the only thing I know of that touches every one of those needs. There is nothing else that touches every one of them, but money will impact every one of those needs. I don't know of anything else. I kept saying it's the only thing I know of because I don't want to say it is the only thing, but uh, I haven't found anything else yet. Brad, correct me if I'm wrong, but the way I understand kind of your model of working with money is simple but profound. It starts with this relationship between financial flashpoints, money scripts, and financial behaviors. So we'll get into the specifics of each in a minute, but just walk us through what is what is this relationship in a, in a general sense? Yeah, so essentially – the way that we've been conceptualizing it and thinking about it and, and all of our understanding around it obviously comes from our background in, in psychology and just trying to sort this out 
um, trying to sort it out in our own lives. And then once we got interested in this topic, you know, I think we were interested in, as psychologists, we were interested in the topic of money for about two weeks. And then at two weeks, we became the world's leading experts in financial psychology, since <laughs> psychologists ignore the topic. I mean, that's, um, you know, great job. We paid attention for two weeks. That, that's what it took to, to get to the top of the field when we first got into it. Um, but yeah, so essentially, we, we have these experiences around money. And we call them financial flashpoints. These are memorable experiences. For, sometimes they're um, historic too. So, so I, I'm being influenced right now by the financial flashpoint experience, for example, of my grandfather who lost all his money in the Great Depression. And I didn't really even know that story existed until I started digging into the family history. And then all of a sudden, my fear about money being taken away from me <laughs> starts to make sense. It has nothing to do with me. But this was an anxiety experience that my grandfather had. Um, and just passed that anxiety down to my mother, passed it down to me. And so those financial flashpoints, it, it's such fertile ground to look at what are those experiences you've had in your life? You know, what, what memories come to mind? Your first memories around money, your most painful, you know, how did your parents talk about money? What did your parents teach you either directly or indirectly? So we have these series of events in our family tree and in our lives that lead to what we call money scripts. So it just makes sense, right? Your beliefs around money, trying to understand your experiences, make sense of your experiences, lead to a set of beliefs to try to understand reality. So for my grandfather, as an example, lost all his money, went to the banks. Well, guess what? Um, you can't trust banks with your money. Like that's a logical conclusion. And we are, we are wired to survive. And so when something bad happens, our brains are looking for some way to make sense of that. So that never, ever happens again. And my grandfather made sure that never happened again because he never put a dollar in the bank the rest of his life. He died in his 90s, kept his money in a box in, in, in his attic. It's like that is a destructive financial behavior that looks crazy from the outside until you look at the history. And then you're like, oh, well, this comes from a historical event of losing all your money because you did exactly that. And the problem is those, those experiences can be somewhat traumatic. And so we have intense emotion that gets attached to the belief. And that's when they become more destructive and less beneficial because we're not able to adapt and change with the times. So, for example, federal government came in and said, hey, we're going to guarantee bank accounts up to 100000 Now it's 250000 But my grandfather was so anxious about it, he, he wasn't able to shift with the times. And, and that's adaptability does require us to be flexible and to evolve as, as situations change. So we have these financial flashpoints, they lead to these money scripts. And then these money scripts, and we've done many studies on this at this point, they predict your outcomes. And so we've done studies looking at the money scripts of ultra wealthy compared to middle class, middle class compared to poor, and very distinct patterns. Like your beliefs predict your socioeconomic status, they predict your credit card behavior, your income, your net worth, how you handle money with your family, uh, your anxiety around money, it, it's, it's fascinating. It, was, it makes sense from the psychological perspective, like your beliefs create your reality. And that's exactly what we found. So you have these early experiences, they lead to beliefs around money, they lead to behaviors, which it's sort of like a circle, then start to give you yeah. all those same experiences all over again. We keep studying it and we keep finding more and more research to confirm that circle and, and see it play out in our lives, quite yeah. frankly, as well as the lives of our clients. Yeah, if I could add something to that, then there's the whole genetic component. None of our ancestors survived by hoarding, which we now call saving and investing. So we have, yeah. we're born into this world with this thing about not keeping anything, but passing it through. And in today's world, uh, that you have to save because in our world today, there won't be anybody there to take care of you at the end. 
at the, again, in our ancestors' world, we didn't have to worry about taking care of us when we got old. Number one, we didn't get old very often. And if we did, the community took care of us. They took care of the babies. They took it, not a single mom and dad. You know, it's like from birth to death, they were taken care of. Our brains are still wired to do that. They're not wired to save what we call save. Hoarders were eliminated from the gene pool because they were considered a threat to the community. And so we've got that. So we have genetics plus the behavior, <laughs> the behavior of our culture around money. And uh, that's what makes it really, really difficult uh, to be able to find our way. And the final thing is nobody talks about it. I, I, right. I figure you got it all figured out, Dodge, because you and I don't talk about it, right? And you think I've got it all figured out. Well, right. uh, Dodge has a new car, so okay. He must be doing okay, mm. right? Or, or whatever, whatever we make up about right. it. So. I'll piggyback on that too, because I that frame is so powerful. The frame of what, ha, so 99.9% of human beings have existed on earth in tribes of 100, 250 people. And you can, you can really understand just about every financial behavior if you think to what was adaptive in that situation. And so to um, my father's point, it's like, if you became, if you saved too much, the, that tribe of 100, 150 people, they know, they know exactly what you're doing every single day. <laughs> they know who you hang out with. They know how much you have. And if it was too much, then you would be looked at as selfish and not contributing to the tribe. And so uh, worst case scenario, you got exiled. You, you had to be extremely aware of how everybody was thinking about you. So your status was essential to survival and knowing your status and being concerned about your status. And so how it, it makes sense why we're triggered on social media to feel deprived because we, our brains are wired to be acutely aware of our status. And so when you see what someone else is wearing, you immediately look at and see what you're wearing. And it, it's, it's so fascinating because, um, you know, we like to sort of tell people, well, you shouldn't care about your status. And, and I, I, I always have to give a chuckle because there, there is no, no one alive today whose genes were passed down to them because they didn't care about their status. Like we're just, we're wired to be attuned to it. And so understanding that we are wired to do everything wrong, like we are absolutely wired to do everything wrong. Sort of the thing that's, that's surprising to me is that anyone does it right. That's the surprising part because we're wired to do it all wrong Um, because the current environment is not what it used to be. And so um, I I find that it's it's a real helpful sort of metaphor to run all of our financial behaviors through because it does a couple things. Number one, it helps us feel less ashamed because shame is a, is a huge problem with money where, um, and and, and I know my dad and I, we like to talk about how our own troubles around money. I'm I'm actually doing it very purposefully because I want people to know that. And then when you do that, people are like, oh gosh, yeah, I'm I'm kind of a hot mess around money too. And so has my family been. And and that's sort of the general state of things, but we're all, we feel so much shame around it because we are, again, wired to look for that status. So I think it really helps to, to put it in perspective on like, we're dealing with this brain that wasn't designed to handle money and frankly, in the last few decades, because things have, have radically changed. So for my grandfather's generation, there was no such thing as credit trouble. He, he couldn't get credit if he wanted it. Um, he had pension. Pension was, was um, society's way of taking the tribe's duty to take care of you as you're older. It was, it was, it was basically offloaded to pensions in the company sort of mindset and culture. Um, so he had a pension when he stopped working. And then when he died, that pension went to my grandmother and they were able to pay their, 
their their rent. So he did not have to have knowledge around personal finance. I don't think he did. He couldn't get in credit trouble, get a job, do the right thing. You get a pension, you're taken care of. Well, all the rules have changed. So what's happened subtly in the background is we've spent, you know, years, um, you know, most 99.9% of our existence living in tribes where the younger people took care of the older people. That was, that was the mindset. Now, some tribes did it better than others. <laughs> Sometimes it, was, it was, um, wasn't pretty, but that was, that was the mindset. And then what we've done as a culture is we've then taken that and put it on companies. Companies have taken that responsibility. And so as the tribes gotten larger, but in the last few decades, the, the, those pensions are written off the books and all of a sudden it's, it's on you as an individual. And I just think it's, it's like, we weren't wired to do it. We weren't trained to do it. Nobody got the memo. You know, it did, you didn't get the memo in the mail saying, Hey, guess what? Social security might not be here. Your company is no longer going to have a pension for you. You're on, you're hundred percent on your own. Like nobody got that letter two decades ago. And so I feel like we're trying to catch up with what are these behaviors that are adaptable? Like what are the most adaptable survivor-based best interest for me and my family behaviors in the current environment? Cause it's always shifting and it's, it's a heavy load. And that's why so many of us are in trouble, I believe. For sure. It makes a lot of sense, Brad. Ted, can you talk about some more examples of, of flashpoints to give some folks ideas about that? That's a great example, Brad, about your grandfather, great, great, you know, and so on back. Um, I'd love to hear some more um, and including the healthy ones, because sometimes early memories around money are are good. Yeah. Um, but generally speaking, they're not. Well, uh, typically um, we help people discover those uh, through a technique that we use where we say, so tell us your first money memory and then put it in some kind of uh, symbolic form. Don't, don't use words, right? So a financial flashpoint for me was the very first time I remember understanding that there's money. And that was my grandfather. Uh, I was about five, six years old and he was a farmer and he was making a deal with another farmer. And back in those days in Ohio, they would kneel on one knee, pick up a little dirt, toss it, chew on a weed, whatever it is. So I'm, I'm the height that these two guys they're doing business. I'm just totally fascinated. And uh, when they get done, the guy my grandfather's talking to stands up and he goes, you've been such a good little boy. He pulls a quarter out of his pocket and gives it to me. I walk away from there going, oh, if you're quiet and you're good, then somebody's going to notice and they're going to give you some money. So that's my career as a teacher began, right? <laughs> right. Somebody else will determine my worth. And I should be lucky you know, that, to even receive that. So I now if my grandfather would have said, look, son, uh, that happened there. But that's really not how money <laughs> works. Uh, that Sometimes that's how it works because that's what money scripts are, right? It's like sometimes it's true. But there are some other ways, too, that you can get money. That would have changed my whole – it would have widened my world. But I walked around believing if you do good things for the right reasons, for the right people, somebody will notice, and they'll give you a really big check at the end of your life. That's how I was living my life. So so it's those first moments in time. Uh, and what does that child take away from that? And typically, when we have them go through all the ones that they can remember – there is a, we ask them at the end of that, what's the one theme? What's the one sentence about how, how money works? Well, you can't trust anyone. Or if it's going to happen, it's going to be, you're going to have to do it yourself. Or um, you're going to have to find somebody to take care of you. And, and that becomes, as Brad said, the determinant of your future. And you don't recognize that it, it's from this belief 
unchallenged belief of a six or seven year old who's trying to figure out how the world works. You know, if you can imagine you, you have a son and he goes, Hey, uh, this is how that works. And you go, Oh buddy, no. <laughs> you know, like, uh, you know, not really. Uh, you don't just find, you don't get rich by finding quarters on the floor. Right. Uh, I know Brad used to go around every time we'd go around, he'd look in the phone booths for quarters in the slots right? <laughs> that somebody <laughs> forgot to pick up the change in the old phone machines. But, but it's those early things. And we call them flashpoints um, out of the um, World War II when Hiroshima was bombed. If you go to Hiroshima today, you'll see pieces of concrete that have the shadow of the person that was there that was evaporated, but their shadow is burned into the concrete wall or it's burned into the roadway. And, and that's how deep and how powerful these things are. It occurs to me as you're sharing this, Ted, that it makes so much sense that our scripts are, you know, often formed in childhood. And the script is made up basically of the, the kind of the statement, oh, I think I get it. This is how it works with money. Right as interpreted by a child. And anybody who's ever raised a child will know if you <laughs> lean over and you say, so what did you learn from that? Often the lesson they learned is wildly exaggerated or totally off or missing a whole lot of context. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's based just on that little nugget of information yes. right there. And they build, they build their world around it and they keep, as we know, confirmation bias. They keep using examples so it's absolutely true. So... Brad, you've you've got a different you, uh, four different categories for money scripts that you talk about in this book, Money Mammoth. Can you talk about those? Sure. So I've I've talked about the one category which we call money avoidance, which is the anti-rich people. Money's you know money corrupts, money's bad, and the flip side that you're more virtuous if you have less money. And so that that of course is not great. <laughs> if your goal is to have higher income or net worth or less financial stress. So that's one category. The other category we found is what we ended up calling money status. Mm. And this is where we're linking our self-worth with our net worth. This is um, people who will tell you they make more than they actually do. And so this is what they say in, in the survey is like, I would tell you I would make, I make more than I actually do. And so it's really attached to um, our perceived status in the world. Now, what's interesting about that, also not great for your financial health, leads to more credit card debt. Because again, you're, you're trying to show the world that perhaps you've made it or that um, you're important or you're valuable. And depending on your neighborhood too, that you know you, you want to show people that you have value so that they don't, um, you're not a victim of crime too. Like, um, you know, like I, I think back to the old Vikings, you know, the more armbands you had, you know, that were gold, the more that you're showing the world, hey, I'm a person of importance and you shouldn't mess with me. So it's almost like a protective armor showing people that, hey, I have value. And so we see that in lower income areas where there's um, more like direct threats of physical violence is people will have more outward displays of wealth and it, it's a protective mechanism. So, but of course, the more outward displays of wealth you have, the worse it is for your net worth. And so that's what we've seen in studies. The th other category we found is what we call money worship which is this, uh, well, it's what it sounds like, right? It's like money's going to solve all my problems. It's going to make me happier. And I, I feel like this is sort of the average American is sort of walking around with this, this concept. And so, of course, not great for your financial health. Now, the good news is, and by the way, when we did this research too, our, our goal was to collect as many money scripts as possible. And dad, you remember we did this for 10 years. So working with clients, collecting every single money script, trying to narrow them down, like how many do we have here? We ended up with a group of about 80 of them that seemed to capture the essence of 
um, the hundreds and thousands that we had seen over the years. And then we just went ahead and administered that. At this point, it's been 10,000 10, people have taken this test. Mm-hmm. And so these categories sort of emerged from that pool of all these possible money beliefs, since that's where these categories came from. The fourth category is what we ended up calling money vigilance. And this is the belief pattern that's associated with people who have better financial outcomes, more financial health, uh, less debt, higher income, higher net worth. And they're the beliefs like um, money, you know, it's important to save for a rainy day. Now, I'll be honest, Dodge, like I thought everybody would say, yeah, of course it is. But but actually, no, <laughs> there's not as many people who believe that as should. Um, I'd be a nervous wreck if I didn't have money saved for an emergency. So you can see there's some a bit of anxiety around that. And I'm, I'm sort of reminded of squirrels. Like if you don't have some anxiety about not having enough nuts in the winter, you're not going to run around all summer and, and hiding nuts and, and gathering nuts. So there's this, there is this connection to the future. There's this attachment to future outcomes that seems to be pretty important. You need to have that mindset of how, how are things going to be in the future? Because again, we're sort of wired to consume everything right now in the present and not think long-term like that. So it goes against our, our wiring, quite frankly. And if you think back to the, the tribes too, you couldn't say, like, how could you possibly save? You couldn't save food. It's going to spoil. So it, this is one of the reasons why we struggle with, with diets when there's a bunch of food around is because we're wired to eat as much as possible as quickly as possible, <laughs> and then move around as little as possible. I mean, this is how our ancestors survived when you have a caloric deficit and there's not as much food around. Um, so the money vigilance thing, it's, it's really, really good. Now there's a, there's a downside to it where you become so worried about money that you can't enjoy your resources. And so that's the double-edged sword with that. Um, and it's the Ebenezer Scrooge type character, which was the topic of our first book. It's a perfect example of somebody who has money, but that driving force to acquire it that they had from childhood from not having enough, that they can't shift gears and they, they're not, they don't allow themselves to enjoy life at all. I'll say one other thing about that money vigilance, and this is fascinating, I think, in terms of social media, and it confirms all the research we've done on ultra-wealthy people, as well as classic books like The Millionaire Next Door. When th- that group of people if you ask them how much money they make, they say that they would probably tell you they make less than they actually do. So there's the big irony, right? So the people who tend to be the wealthiest on average are the ones who are most likely to downplay how much money they have. They're the ones to, that are more likely to not be wearing designer clothes. And and, and this, is a, this is a hard one for people to swallow because the subsection of wealthy people that they do see on social media are the ones who are displaying all the wealth. And so they think, oh, this is how most millionaires are. It's actually not true. So we have all these like false narratives and beliefs around um, rich people, which has been another thing that I've really enjoyed studying because frankly, I wanted to know what was true. (laughs) I mean, it just came from my own understanding. And so um, I'll just give you one example of a study we did. We looked at ultra wealthy people and we compared them to middle class people. And so the ultra wealthy people, just as a frame of reference, they had a net worth of about $11 million on average. And we compared them to a group of people who had, on average, $500,000 in net worth. So net worth is all your assets minus your liabilities. And we, we asked a bunch of different questions on those two groups to try to understand, is, is there psychological differences? Is there spending habit differences? This is the one that blew me away on the spending habits. What, they, what we found is that the people who had $11 million, they had they had about 18 times more money. But they only spent twice as much on houses, cars, vacations, and watches. And that is fascinating. And what does that tell you? And by the way, 80% of millionaires in the U.S. are self-made too, in the sense that they weren't born rich, which is another thing that 
Um, in my growing up as a kid too, I didn't know that to be true. And I, I thought that, well, the only way you're going to get rich is if your dad was rich or your mom was rich. Like you got to be born into it. it takes money to make money. Like these are the money scripts that coming from where I came, I, I was actually super excited to hear that 80% of millionaires in the U S are self-made because I was like, wow. So you mean there's, I got a shot. There's a chance. Um, and so I think that stuff, I think that information is incredibly empowering. Um, so, but, but really fascinating, right? Because that blew my mind. I'm like, wait a second. I, I thought people who had more money spent way more money. Well, they do, they spend more money, but only about twice as much. Is it, it money vigilance, I guess, is, is the category of script that we would consider healthiest of those. Are there, are there folks you come across who really seem to live in what we might call money balance where they're not especially obsessed with it, but they don't spend too much. They're not terrified about how much they save, but they seem to save enough. They, I mean, they're just kind of at ease with it. It just isn't really that big a deal to them all the time. Yep. So in the research, it, it, that would be the money vigilant. Now, if you have a really high score on some of the items in there where you're like, you can't sleep at night because you're so worried. I mean, that's the extreme where like on paper, you're going to look great, right? So it's like, yes, wow, you've acquired all this net worth. But you're, you're, some, many people are just living a life, an experience of poverty and lack. And, and I think we can all agree that's a terrible way to go through life. <laughs> you know, I don't, I, we don't care how much money you have in your bank account if you're miserable and in constant fear. So that's the extreme version of the money vigilant. Most people we've studied, though, the money vigilant are, you know, is, is it important to save for a rainy day? I mean, where, where do you believe that on a scale of one to seven? And so the, the more you believe it, the more you're going to save. And so essentially, I, I feel like a lot of the individuals we work with, you know, um, I don't even want to say they're balanced. I think that we're all striving for balance. I think we're all works in progress in that regard. Um, and even the wealthy people are stressed about money. <laughs> so I think that, you know, we're looking for, for, um, I would say balance is a great word because even happiness is a, is a delusion, like happiness as a destination. It's like, there is no such thing as a destination. It's, it's an emotional experience that maybe you're having right now and maybe you're not. And we should, and we all want to have that emotional experience more often. But, but I think balance is probably a good way to look at it. It's something that we all um, are continuing to strive for, I think. But do we ever yeah. reach it? I don't, I don't think so. So you, maybe you get to a place where you can move in and out of some stress about it. But generally speaking, moving on to the topic Ted was about to bring in, um, your financial behaviors are constructive, not destructive. Yeah. And, and again, I would say that's on a scale, right? Yeah. Like, where are we? And, you know, hopefully we want to be more towards the non-self-defeating behaviors than the self-defeating behaviors. But I, I don't know anybody who's hasn't uh, done something stupid with their money. Sure. Right? And, and they, yeah. they may have even known about it when they did it. Like, I know this is not a good thing, but I'm going to buy the car anyway. And, and um, the people who really understand financial psychology sell us things probably the best ones in the world at this uh, are the people who put together Las Vegas, right? They know, they know every um, piece of our DNA in terms of how to speak to it, right? They don't want us looking down as we walk through the casinos because they know looking down causes us to begin reflecting and they don't want us to feel, right? Uh, they, they have certain noises at certain keys because they know that's the most attractive to, I'm talking about the primitive brain, right? And so right. they know, and people who, uh, you go in to buy a car, they don't, they don't give you a sheet of paper and say, here are the cars we have for sale, right? They go, come with me, right? 
and it's always a little more than you say you can afford. And they don't, they'd set you down in the driver's seat. And now this primitive brain goes, ah, okay. And we smell it. I mean, that's an artificial smell. I mean, everything, right? <laughs> and uh, the scarcity principle, like, well, we're not sure we'll get another one in like this. And we've got three other people coming in to take a look at this. You know, all of that plays into our primitive uh, survival brain. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know how I got into that, but the people who are really the experts at this and have been for a long time, whether they knew it or not, are the people who sell us things. So you mentioned in the book some of the financial behaviors can be financial denial, compulsive buying, hoarding, workaholism, gambling. And yet some of them are really subtler than that. Sometimes it's, it's just sort of day-to-day stuff we watch that doesn't work very well. I was talking with somebody not too long ago who was talking about this tension he has with his wife where um, he tends to be very, very frugal, maybe too much so. She tends to be more open about it and uh, spend a lot more, and he can't quite understand why she's spending some of these things. And I said, have you ever asked her about that? And he said, well, what she says is she believes money is like energy. And my ears perked up and I thought, huh, that sounds about right. And then he said, and with energy, the more you spend, the more you receive. And so she believes that the more money she spends, the more she'll get back. And that's kind of how she runs things. And he just sort of shrugged his shoulders like I hadn't really thought about whether that was working out very well. And so we just sort of had to sit with, okay, how is that working out for your family? And it just, um, it's kind of, it's poignant how uh, how many ways that works into our psyches without really thinking about it. I found myself thinking also as I was reading this book about um, a quote that came up earlier in the podcast with Linda Odom about dreams. She's Jungian in her uh, approach. We were talking about Carl Jung's beautiful statement that until we make the unconscious conscious, it will rule our lives and we will call it fate. That is never more true than with money. It's amazing to watch. So you've got these events you haven't really processed with any help. You've got beliefs then that get developed around them. And you start enacting those into behaviors that nobody's allowed to talk about. How in the world would these get conscious? Well, and and, um, a couple things you mentioned that sort of struck me is we tend to pair up with people who help balance us out. So, So the frugal person, it's not an unusual thing that he would be connected with a spender. And it's no accident that her spending self would be connected to, he's the brake and she's the accelerator, right? Uh, the, the biggest trouble comes when both people are the accelerators, right? Like there's no, there's no brake whatsoever. So, uh, and that's, that's one of the factors we often work with is, you know, like there's a difference of things. And, and you're, the second thing I wanted to mention was, he didn't know what to do with the comment of money is energy, right? It's like, well, tell me more about that. Tell me more about that. And, and whatever the answer is to have her go deeper, more likely than not, she would have run into something going, well, that I guess it doesn't quite make all that much sense, <laughs> right? Uh, but but even when we say what our beliefs are, they're, they're unchallenged. Uh, and, and then he's like, well, help me understand that and his frugality has a belief system underneath that too but we we tend to be justified by our 
first statement of, well, it's important to save. So that what? So that what? So that what? And if it's so that bad things never happen, there'll never be enough then, right? One of the subtle versions I see that isn't at quite the level of a gambling disorder, let's say, will be somebody who um, generally understands money pretty well, has got a lot of good behaviors about it, has got a lot of good goals, is looking for that opportunity to make the money. But when the opportunity comes along, they have a way of missing it. There's something going on inside that just says, I can never quite have as much as I would like to have. That's not possible for me. And so they... I think that gentleman I was just talking about isn't just frugal. He has a way of not quite organizing his life so that he can make the kind of money he'd like to make. Um, He's just always falling short of that and feeling frustrated. He doesn't end up running up credit cards because he lives within those means, but the means are a pretty tight box for him. Yeah. You know, that fits into um, a concept that we develop called the financial comfort zone, right? That um, if you become too wildly successful, Dodge, then there's 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 a whole bunch of people who are in your place right now that you're going to be in somewhat of a dilemma with, and they're going to be a dilemma with you, right? That uh, and it's you know like it's pretty tough to leave your tribe. You'll be joining another one, but will they accept you? And so I, I see a lot of self-defeating behavior, like they snatch defeat out of the jaws of victory so, mm-hmm. so that they can, so that, you know, they might be miserable, but at least it's a known miserableness, right? And, and there's some thing in, in unity. So you get together having pizza with everybody going, you know, the government sucks and, you know, like, like you know, we're, at least we're among friends, right? To have somebody there goes, you know, actually, I like the government a lot. It's like, whoa, you know, and especially over the last four years, somebody who goes, well, you know, actually, uh, I see it a different way. It's it's very difficult for us to do that. And, and uh, I've heard it said that each one of us has a million dollar idea three times a week. But we we do not follow through. Entrepreneurs do. They go, Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I was just telling um, my wife yesterday, um, you know what? Fast food, I mean, drive through Chinese doesn't exist, but it could. I'll take some edamame. <laughs> I'll take some veggie egg rolls and you drive through, boom, 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 boom. Now you might not get be able to get the other thing, but you can get some hot and sour soup. But and it's like, so that's my million dollar idea. If I wasn't 76 <laughs> years old, I, I might say, hey, 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 you know, um, we're missing something here, especially the opportunities during this last year, like drive through safe, sit down, not so safe. Right. And, uh, you know, I think that's true. It's like, but what would I do if I became terribly successful? Oh, I'd become like them. I don't want to become like them. And uh, all that happening subconsciously. So we end up staying where we stay. Well, I feel like we've covered the problem pretty well. I've got a pretty good idea of how we got here. Uh, Brad, can you say a little bit about where folks can go from here? Like, what is the process for changing this? So I think there's lots of routes to um, change, thankfully, right? (laughs) Um, And I think that for some people, the money script, just becoming aware of it and shining light on it, I I feel like for many people, it's just this cathartic relief just in seeing their behaviors in the context of, 
you know, generational patterns. And it's like, oh my gosh, of course I did this. You know, you could take any child anywhere and drop them in my family and, and have them, they have the experiences I have, and then they end up where I'm at. Like, I feel, I feel like there's so much catharsis in that. And so I know that for some people, just that awareness can be transformational. And it's like, wow, okay, so I don't have to be like this. And then they go on a hungry search to figure out, okay, what do I need to do? What, what am I, what, you know, um, what am I lacking and finding the right mentors? And, and that can be an incredible aha moment. And I think it, th- those aha moments are tough to get in other areas of psychology because it's like, well, you kind of know about your mom and your family and, and relationships. But sometimes since we don't talk about this, it's just like, bing. So I think there's lots of opportunity for that. When you have intense emotion attached to the belief, and I'll go back to that experience with my grandfather who led to, you know, just keeping money you know, out of the bank. Um, sometimes it, it's traumatic. Like sometimes there's intense emotion attached to it. Same thing like growing up in poverty, this belief that there'll never be enough money. Like there can be so much emotion attached to it that I, I think therapy is required. I think you're going to actually have to work with somebody around understanding that and releasing it and and um, processing it and, and coming up with almost like this treat, this quote treatment plan that lasts the rest of your life in the sense of um, just being on top of that and paying attention to it. We've also found ways to go straight after that tribal brain, that animal brain, and just directly intervene with that aside from everything else that have been extremely powerful. So for example, we just did a study that uh, recently published where we increased people's savings rates by 73% after one hour. And in that hour, what we did is we just harnessed everything we knew about human psychology. Like my, like my father said, like all the stuff they're going to do to you in the casino. And, but we target it towards personal savings rates. And so we asked people like, how much you saving now? How much you saving a month later? And, and in that one hour, what we did is we, we got people super excited about their goals. They, first of all, identify what your financial goals are. Like, have you ever thought about that? You know, like, what are the three things you want out of life with your money? So we got people super excited about it. We had them create visual representations of those goals. So we gave them a bunch of art supplies and they, they drew things and they cut out pictures uh, attached to their values. And then we encouraged them to do things like automate. So you've, you've identified these goals. Now go home, set up automatic movements from your checking account to a savings investment account, go crush those goals. People got so excited about it. We got them to share those goals with another, with a friend. Um, And so what we saw is just a huge increase in savings just after that experience. So I think there's a lot of different ways to do it. And what's so exciting for me about the financial psychology in general is just such fertile ground for people because many times we haven't even thought about this. That makes a whole lot of sense. And it comes right back to that Carl Jung piece of like, so if you can make the unconscious conscious, um, it stops ruling your life. Uh, and it sounds like you're working then not just to make the early flashpoint memories conscious, but the scripts conscious and the behaviors more conscious. But also on top of that, getting more conscious about your goals and what, you know, what it would take to reach them. And it sounds like when all of that kind of has a light shown on it at the same time, within an hour, people have already made a giant difference. Yeah. You know, emotions and psychology matter way more than our financial reality. And I'm using air quotes here because I bet you, I bet you almost anything that pre-pandemic, if you, if you ask the average American who, who, by the way, was saving about 6% of their income, if you said, I'd like you to save 30% of your income. I would bet you that most Americans would say, are you kidding me? There's no way I can do that. 
Well, guess what happened March <laughs> um, 2020 in the midst of the pandemic? Our savings rates shot up to 30% on average as, as a country. And so, I mean, it's like, it, it, so that is a bad example of, in terms of emotions and, you know, like a negative emotional experience and, and people feeling very fearful that led to radical and just unbelievable financial behavioral change. That, that's the highest savings rates we've ever had in the history of the country. Um, and it was because of panic and anxiety. But the, the cool thing about what we're trying to do is we're trying to make it a positive experience because <laughs> those positive emotions can be just as powerful. And actually, I think they can be um, more powerful in terms of sustained change. Like the problem with that negative feeling is we're, we've already dropped the savings rates dramatically since then because f- people are feeling better. But I mean, that's just an example of like that. That's emotional. That's psychological. It happened in two months, like, like, bam, um, negative intervention. But I, but I think we can harness the, the emotional side of our brain, which is making all these decisions anyway, and point, point that elephant <laughs> in a positive direction where, where it can be unstoppable in terms of conquering our goals. Even the word rich for a lot of people has got just the littlest bit of an edge of other. There's something about that that sounds different from wealthy. Um, until we start adding words like obscene. Once they talk about obscene wealth, then somebody who's gone on to make, you know, millions or billions is somehow dirty and bad and wrong. Even if they go on to give $100 billion away, they are obscenely wealthy. (laughs) It's not gloriously wealthy. And I just was thinking about that word and all the ways that, you know, even in our language, we've kind of adopted ways of talking about um, that level of success as very much other. And then it occurred to me that some of the time it's because we are looking at disordered stuff. Like one of the ways you get to wealth like that isn't through healthy financial planning. It's through, indeed, ruthlessness or you know, really disordered kind of obsessive workaholism or something that that doesn't feel quite right to look at. And there are some ways that, especially now, I mean, over the last 50 years, the the wealth gap has become really frighteningly huge. You know, middle class disappearing, more and more poverty, and a kind of wealth that's mind-boggling, the number of zeros involved, the amount of money they could spend per month for the rest of eternity just kind of blows the mind. And it doesn't feel good. It feels it feels wrong somehow. And it's hard to know how how do you how do you both recognize there's something out of balance about the the the, the tribe of this country and it's not because money or success itself are bad. It's because there are versions of it that aren't very healthy. Yeah, you know, what I always try to do is relate it to other aspects, right? We could, you know, like sexuality or um, helping children or helping, you know, like any aspect of our culture. We, we can get way out of line. We can get it skewed or we can under produce. So, so what you're talking about, um, and it's really interesting because we have no way of knowing unless we are one of those people, right? 
everything that we make up about those people, we make up about those people. And the people who influence about those people are the people who don't have it also. We don't hear those people talking, right? And uh, I, I, I was being interviewed by the BBC a, a few months ago, and uh, they said, have you ever met or do you work with billionaires? I said, yes, I have a few. Um, and and they went on this rant about, so aren't they despicable people? Aren't they? Did they, did they, did they, did they you know, on and on and on. And I said, well, actually, that's not been my experience <laughs> with them, that, um, that they're pretty much like you and I uh, in terms of the things they struggle with, the things they're concerned about, their value systems. I mean, and they, and they, they were relentless, like, yes, but, you know, but, uh, and um, I, I, I honestly couldn't, I couldn't trash them, you know, and um, my piece didn't appear in that piece on the BBC, right? <laughs> that, that was not a part of the interview. So, so we have, uh, I, I think even in asking those questions, you know, there, there's a, there's an ignorance that I have no, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in this castle and I have no idea where I'm at or what rooms to ask. And I can only ask the questions I can ask for my little space in the hallway. So uh, you ask a really good question. And I, I think that my experience has been that when I'm with those people, that they have incredible stories of how all this happened and what they hope to have happen. Uh, there's never, I don't know of any greater pain than I've experienced when, you know, one of those people is saying, you know, I, I don't want to destroy my children this, with this. Can you help me? Right. Just like you don't want to destroy your child by anything that you do. And they, they have, they have this burden, right? And, you know, it's like, it's sort of like the um, Fantasia when the guy couldn't stop the brooms from bringing water up the hill, right? Like they can't stop it from coming in, right? There, uh, there are a number of them like that, and we might get well, poor thing. But uh, you know, it, to them, it's not it's not uh, an asset; it's actually a, a burden. So um, again, what I try to do to keep some. Pr- perspective is um, there are people who work too much. There are people who have too much money, you know, like, and there are people who don't work enough. Uh, it, so I, I just keep trying to put it into a framework of something. There are people who overparent, and there are people who underparent. And like, so what is that about? Uh, well, there's, it's always about something. And there's always a story. The one billionaire that uh, I want to share is um, we talk to him about how he got to be where he was. He was an eight-year-old young man who came with his grandmother from India, dirt poor, couldn't speak English, was thrown out of schools because he was dirty and all this kind of stuff in America. Um, He persevered. He went to work at age 14 at a fast food restaurant on the first day. He said, I want to own this someday. He said that to himself. He began saving 99 cents out of every dollar that he earned. He still does that, right? He's in his he's in his sixties, so he not only ended up owning that restaurant, he owned the whole chain, and he owns chains of restaurants worldwide. That's his thing, right? And um, uh, we were meeting because he wanted to make sure that his children weren't destroyed by all the wealth, right? I'm I'm having trouble figuring out what 
where the bad guy is in this, but somebody from the outside, he's obscenely wealthy, but he's, you know what I'm saying? That um, uh, it's really important to keep our windows clean as we're looking out uh, into that. And the other thing I've heard, I don't know that this is true, but Bill Gates was vilified when he had hundreds of millions of dollars and he wasn't giving away anything. Right. And, what I've heard, he said, I, I didn't hear him say it myself, but he said, you know, millions of dollars fix nothing. When I can give away billions of dollars, that's when I'm going to start. And that's exactly what he's done. Right? Whatever your political leanings are about Bill Gates, he has he's done what he said. I, I, you know, I'm not going to give a dollar when a dollar isn't going to make that much difference. I'm going to give a billion dollars and then I can make a difference. Right. And so, um, you know, that's not the kind of thinking that is in the popular media about those people or whatever. Like, I don't know the Bezos. I don't know what he's done or what he does, whatever it is. Um, and is it fair? You know, it's just one more example of things that are probably not fair. But, the, you know, it's just if I, if I want to gain anything from the wisdom, then I have to listen without judgment. One of the things I think that inhibits us from being as financially successful as we can be is we are not listening to what they're telling us. We're judging what we see and being resentful about that. Uh, if you, as a therapist, if you resent the person coming to talk to you, you know, you're probably not going to listen very well, right? And um, you'll take anything that he says and you'll twist it, you'll, you know, and, which is what we do with wealth. We tend to do the same thing with the poor. Mm. Those of us who came from poverty don't do it. But if we didn't come from poverty, we have the same attitudes about they're really poor. Well, they could if they wanted to. And, you know, and, and, and we do as much damage down as we do up. Yeah. I've had a really interesting experience watching a family member who um, has experienced kind of many of the different parts of this. She came from a very old family with lots of wealth uh, generations back. Her own parents um, were raised to believe that the wealth wasn't the point and that it was the amount of good they could do and lived accordingly. Seems like within their means, but certainly we're not passing down a whole lot of wisdom about here's how you amass more wealth. She did well for herself and with her husband, making kind of th then self-starting, right, from not a whole lot of inheritance, but raised in a, you know, in in the trappings of, of old money wealth, right? She grew up in that kind of home, but was not handed that kind of cash, right? Um, and then went on to do very well for herself, but didn't do it quite carefully enough, <laughs> not even close, and lost it all in the huge financial downturn of, you know, 07, 08 kind of timing, and literally went bankrupt multiple times, and then began to share with me, tell me what it's like to be poor. And what an education that was for her. She'd always been compassionate about that, but had no idea how much harder it is when you don't have credit, when you have no cash for a small emergency, which you easily could make up for next week, but you have nothing to, to cover that with. So 
then you end up in high interest problems and, uh, you know, and so on. And all of that together, because this is somebody I know well and I'm close to, has given me a whole lot more compassion for, A, all of those different points of view, being real people and good people <laughs> and very much achievable and um, and also kind of a sense for, like, those are all but a few steps from right here. And the thing that no one really wants to talk about is this whole financial thing is a house of cards. Right. There's never been a monetary system in the existence of humankind that's persisted. Yeah. So to some degree, we're all believing in a fantasy that if we have enough of this stuff, then we'll be safe and comfortable. And, and that's why I always help people get to, um, and then what would happen, and then what would happen, and then what would happen. Um, and typically what people come up with is, well, I, I, I have... You know, they they get to the essence of who they are. Like I'll still have me, right? It's like okay, right? And and that helps relieve some of the stress too. Part of the stress is created by the belief that if I have enough money or if I'm secure enough financially, then the stress will go away. I think the stress comes from our preferring not to believe that uh, we we want to believe that life is fair and it's not that it's just, but it's not. That will live forever, but we're not, you know. Um, and and once we, once we accept that, then the ex, it, the external stuff isn't as meaningful nor as important. So yeah. that's what the bottom of all of it, I think. Ted, say a little bit more about what you'd like to see people do next. I'd sure suggest they go buy Money Mammoth. Uh, it that would be a great start because it's going to give them a lot of exactly this background and a whole lot more information about um, kind of creating a vision and a plan for how to make these changes. But are there other things you'd suggest they do? Well, you know, um, as you were asking that question, I was thinking, do what I did when I started trying to figure out my own stuff around money. Uh, I, I simply started with a question, a simple question. I asked everybody for about two years, two and a half years. Everybody would sit down with me at a dinner table or whatever. Actually, my wife kicked me under the table one time when I asked it because she said it's impolite to ask people how much money they make. I, I, that wasn't my question. My question was, how do you feel okay about having more than you need when other people don't have enough? That was my simple question. And it, was, and it just generated all kinds of incredible conversations. Like, And pretty much universally, everyone said, I couldn't tell you because I don't have enough. And I'm thinking, well, that's really wild because you're a multimillionaire. Now, you probably don't have more. <laughs> you know, but everybody had the same question except for two. One said, I have more than I need. I feel really uncomfortable. And now he's right back to not having any money. And another woman said to me, I feel great about it. And it's like, how can you feel because of the social, blood, this, that, and the other thing? And she said, number one, I know that my kids will never have to worry one day about taking care of me. And number two, tens of thousands of people in a Midwestern city are now having lunch today because I can fund that for them. It's like, all right. So that gave, that broke the wealth thing. Like, wow, I can, I can do more good if I have more and it's like suddenly as Brad said, it's psychological barriers broken. It's like, well, I, I want to do more. 
like, wow, if I have more, I can give away more, you know, and it's, it, it's sudden, it, it, everything changed for me in that moment, simply because I started asking questions of people around me. Uh, and my wife knows I'm one of those, she calls it fixing to do a Ted, like at a, at a dull moment in a dinner thing. It's like, what do you think of this? Right. <laughs> it's like, and, and it's like, have the conversation, right. Begin the conversation and uh, out of innocence and interest and so on. Um, because our kids' lives are at stake really. And our grandchildren. And we, we, part of, we ha- I think we have a duty to help the next generation do something different than we did because the rules have changed. As Brad said, the rules have changed in my lifetime. The rules have totally changed. My father was making more money at the end of his life than he ever made when he was working because he had a government retirement, right? That doesn't happen anymore. Right. So, yeah. I I would just piggyback on that and echo it. Um, And it's almost like, if the we could reframe the question and say that so you're in a certain socioeconomic tribe and uh, or country and you want to explore moving to another country or socioeconomic tribe and it doesn't actually it doesn't matter whether you're going up or down on the on the ladder it, the psychology is the same so how do you find out like let's say that um you know you're gonna you're gonna move to France you know you want to move to France in six months well how do you prepare yourself for that I mean probably a good idea to do some research figure out how to speak the language, learn about the customs, um, and as well as how to get there. I mean, that's the other thing. And so for, for me, one of the most powerful tools in my life is um, anytime I'm entering into something new, new territory I don't know about, is to find somebody who's a step or two ahead of me, just like my father did, and, and pick their brain. You know, Because what I want to know is how are they looking at this? How, how are they understanding this? Because if you talk to, let's just talk about books, for example. So let's say that um, I would like to be an author and I've never written a book. So I'm surrounded by people in my tribe who aren't authors. You know, they don't, they haven't written books probably. Um, and so if I start asking around and say, Hey, so, you know, how do you write a book? I, I might hear stuff like, um, I don't know, or even worse, it's, it's really hard to do. <laughs> um, like even that, it, well, wow, that's really hard to do. Well, if you go talk to a tribe of 150 authors, none of them are going to tell you it's really hard to do. It's, it's in that tribe. We write books. That's what we do. Yeah, that's what we do. It's just, of course, you can write a book. Um, and these are the steps to do it. And so, just that that difference around um, it's really hard to oh oh yeah it's a it's a foregone conclusion that you can do it. Um, that in and of itself is such a powerful shift because it, it takes it from. Could it ever happen to you? Well, of course you could make it happen and, and this is how you would do it. Um, and so that's what I found in my own life and with clients too. Like if you want to learn how to um, make more money, you know, it, it helps to pick the brains and learn from people who are doing exactly what it is you want to do or a step or two ahead. And I always say a step or two ahead because those people you have immediate access to. Like, you know, if you're thinking that you want to be a motivational speaker, um, you know, if, if you start to like if you send an email to Tony Robbins, you know, and, and you don't get an email back, you're like, don't be discouraged. Like, why don't you find somebody who's doing some public speaking <laughs> in your neighborhood and within your circle, you're going to find somebody who's at least a step or two ahead of you and go pick their brain, figure out how they do it and, and just repeat um, until you reach your goals. Makes a whole lot of sense. I hear putting those two things together, like get really curious about how you're doing money, especially if you can do it without shame, then your curiosity is much greater. One of the things I'm really curious about is is just that simple fact that at almost every income level, people believe they'd finally be happy if they could have twice as much. And even if they get to that very twice as much number, 
they will keep thinking, ah, if I could double this, I definitely would be comfortable. That's a really curious thing. But what you're saying is there are folks out there who are succeeding at another level. Um, and maybe it'd be interesting to follow folks who are not just a couple steps ahead in terms of, um, the, you know, how they're doing on paper, but a couple steps ahead in terms of their feeling financially peaceful. You know, finding somebody who's like, seems to have gotten to a place where, yeah, they experience some of the day-to-day -day money stress, but generally speaking, it's it's not only not dysfunctional, it's been satisfying. Well, one of the things that uh, is clear in our work is uh, the the stress of debt is highly underrated we're 100% off in terms of how good it would feel to owe nothing. We're 50% off in, oh, this is going to make me feel really good to buy this or to get this, right? It, it's going to be half as satisfying. So, so those are, you know, if somebody was hanging out with me and said, so how can I get more peace around it? It's like um, the greatest peace in my mind is to know that I don't owe anybody anything. So it doesn't really matter so much what happens out there. Right. And I have I have savings. So I, I can't imagine going into February and March of 2020 with all kinds of debt and not enough to know. If, you know, it's like I, I can't imagine living through that. And I think many people did not. Right? Many people didn't live through that. Well, thank you, guys. It's been a really, really helpful conversation. I really appreciate the time. Um, Brad, I know you've got somewhere you need to be in the next couple minutes, so let's let you go. And Ted, if you'd like to stay a little longer, we can uh, we can stay for an experiential exercise for listeners. Thank you so much for letting me be a part of the conversation, Dodge. And good to see you, Dad. Love working with you. It's it's quite a treat. It's it's an incredible blessing. So thank you. Pete again. How do you feel about having more than you need when there are others around you that do not have enough? Can you even imagine asking that question? It's hard for me to put myself there. It hits all of my social anxiety triggers. But that is the value of pushing on perspectives, right? Peeking around the corner at the you who has already mastered the hard things. Next week on Afterthoughts, Dodge and I do our best to unpack a triggering conversation for the both of us. It's fun and challenging and illuminating at once. Between now and then, if you want to make sure you're set up to hear it, we need to ask for your support. This show comes thanks to listeners like you, listeners who have already visited truestory.fm slash the change paradox, who've gotten signed up to be supporters of this show. Those contributions go straight to the costs associated with production, hosting, and delivery of the show to you, and let us make more choices around how we spend our time doing it. Great guests, longer seasons, and bringing on more members of the team to help the change paradox thrive. The Afterthoughts podcast is one of our member benefits, a partner podcast in which Dodge and I process each interview with laughs along the way, of course. Plus, you'll get every episode a week before its public release. To those who have joined already, our deepest thanks. To those still thinking it through, we hope to see you soon. Again, truestory.fm slash the change paradox. And now, 
Ted Klontz offers an experiential exercise on financial peace. All right, so what I'd like for you to do is I'd like for you to conjure up the father figure in your life when you were a little kid and you were growing up in that environment. It may have been your father, it may have been a grandfather, it may have been a father figure, a minister, a teacher, whatever, but somebody who was um, in that role of father figure. And as you think of them, I'd like for you to write down five adjectives that would describe their behavior around money, their beliefs, their behaviors around money. Just five adjectives as quickly as possible. And now I'd like for you to write down another five adjectives that would describe the mother energy in the family that you grew up in could have been your mother, grandmother, aunt, teacher, minister, whatever it is, but an important person in that female role um, or, or, or in the mother role and five adjectives to describe their beliefs and behaviors around money. Adjectives to describe their energy around money. Now what I'd like for you to do is to go back to those 10 words that you have listed. I want you to draw a circle around each of those adjectives that you would say also apply to you. If you were describing your beliefs and behaviors around money, circle the ones that would apply to you also. And then finally, what I'd like you to do is I want you to go back to that list and I want you to put a rectangle around each of those words that either other people have said about you and your money behavior, or you believe that they would probably say about you. Doesn't mean that you believe it. It might mean that you believe it, but what other people have said or ways that they might describe you in terms of adjectives they would use for you. 
And um, I like to call this the family tree exercise because it there's probably some connection. You've probably found at least one or more of those words that came from your family system that also apply to you. And it sort of illustrates what we were talking about earlier in terms of where these beliefs and behaviors come from. And that's the beginning of understanding our financial legacy. Because our financial behaviors, we didn't just make them up and you aren't where you are financially just because you made it all up, but you were actually given a roadmap by the people who were before you. And the words that you've circled uh, or the ways that other people see you that perhaps you don't see yourself, is sort of the direction they pointed you in. It was the orientation, you know, like 23 degrees north and 18 degrees latitude, you know, like, okay, you're off on your journey. And, and that can only take you in the in that direction of that trajectory and the rest of the world the 360 degrees is the possibility but we don't know that typically growing up so this is beginning of understanding that you came to where you are financially um, you, you didn't make it up you came to it naturally not because of your nature but because of the nature that was around you growing up <laughs>